Church, it is good to be with you, worshiping with you this morning. I got to tell you, you sound good. I was up front, I could hear you. You sounded really good. So today we are continuing our Lenten sermon series entitled Harbingers of the Cross, where we're looking at accounts from the Gospels about the days leading up to that first Easter and paying particular attention to how those accounts point us to the cross of Christ. And today we're going to be looking at a passage from the Gospel of John that's filled with tensions and contradictions, much like the cross itself. So hear now the word of God from John 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. There's a lot going on at this party, I can tell you that. But before we dig into it, let's pray together. Lord God, you alone are the word, and you alone have the words of eternal life. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us as we are gathered here today, and speak through us as we are scattered in the world this week. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we pray all this in the name of our crucified King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, last Wednesday, I went to visit a friend of mine in the hospital who was recently diagnosed with leukemia. And of course, his world and his family's world has been turned upside down. So I've gotten a chance to talk with him and his wife, and under the circumstances, they're doing amazingly well. Their faith is strong and their spirits are up. And when I visited him, we decided to conduct a small Ash Wednesday service right there in his hospital room. So I read aloud some traditional Lenten liturgy, and I imposed the cross on his forehead with some ashes. His doctors said that was fine. And then we prayed together. It was a sweet and holy moment. And after that, we just hung out in his room and talked for a while. 
And as we were talking in the course of our conversation, he was telling me a story, and he forgot about the ashes on his head, and he was talking, and he just rubbed his hand right through the middle of the cross that I put on his face, and then he just proceeded to wipe the ashes all over his face. And of course, he was oblivious to this, so he kept right on talking, even though he looked like a coal miner at the end of a 12-hour shift, and all he could see was my face going. And so I jumped up, and I, I grabbed some tissues, I resisted the urge to do what my mother would have done, which is lick her finger and don't wash his face. And I just made it worse. But then we got a washcloth and some water, and we wiped his face off and clean, cleaned him up, and we had a, a bit of a laugh. But I was reminded of that day and of that visit when I read this passage about the dinner party at Lazarus's house. Because just like our time together in that hospital room, there's a lot going on at this party. There's the specter of death, but the profound presence of life. There's holiness and messiness. There's fear and faith. There's darkness and light. And in that kind of confusing, conflicted space, you know, the kind of space that we all live in, it's difficult to bear the mark of the cross. So this scene recounts a dinner party in the days leading up to that first Easter. And it takes place in the town of Bethany, which is two short miles from Jerusalem. Now it appears that the sisters, Mary and Martha, are throwing a party in honor of their brother Lazarus. And all of them, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, all one family, they're really good friends with Jesus. And as many of you know, and the text implies, only days before this, Lazarus had fallen ill, and he died. And he laid in the tomb for four days before being called out of the grave and back into life by Jesus. So with that as the background, there's, there's going to be some kind of party here. Now, in the ancient world, an event like this, it's more neighborhood barbecue than intimate gathering. Because in addition to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus, you're going to get at least all 12 of the disciples, and they probably have some folks with them too. And as the end of this passage indicates, there's also a great crowd of people milling around. They're milling around in the street. They're milling around in the yard. And they may be even milling around in the house in order to get a glimpse of Jesus the miracle worker and that Lazarus dude. That guy who was dead and who's now alive. Now let's just stop right here for a second and imagine how jarring it is to be Lazarus. Imagine how disorienting it must be to have briefly glimpsed the glory of God. To have momentarily walked in the kingdom of heaven and then you experience the strangeness of being called back back into a frail and failing body, back into the sin and struggle of the world, back into a place where you are destined to die again. So that's a crazy space. But also at the same time, imagine how empowering it is to be Lazarus. What confidence he must have, what assurance he must carry. And when he hears the rumor that the jealous religious leaders are plotting to kill him, you can almost hear him almost laugh. He's got to be thinking inside himself, kill me? 
kill me? So what? Been there, done that, right? And it makes no sense to kill me because it's only going to embarrass you further when Jesus raises me back up to new life again. Why should I fear you or death when I'm loved by the one who rules over both you and death? And as crazy as all that is to imagine, you know who should be able to do that really, really well? Us, the church. Because in Lazarus, we see a model of the church, right? What is the church except people who have been called from death to life? What is the church but people who have heard the mighty name of Jesus call out our name and say to our dead spirits, Believer, come forth. What is the church but people who know what it is to walk out of the gloom of the grave and blink in stunned amazement at the brightness of new life? What is the church but people who know how hard it is to take off those grave clothes, to throw off the ways of death? What is the church but those who have been called to carry the brightness of new life back into a dark world full of sin and temptation and opposition and suffering? What should the church be but a congregation filled with crazy confidence because we know of all people in this world, we should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one who loves us stands on the other side of any grave ready to call our name out again. So at that party, Lazarus sits in this strange, conflicted, contradictory space just like my friend at the hospital, and just like you do right now. Now, at the party, the text notes that Jesus and the disciples were reclining at the table, which was the eating custom of the time. And here's a relatively famous painting that might give you a picture of that, what that would look like. And then in the middle of the party, Mary approaches Jesus and falls at his feet. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, is specifically identified three times in the Gospels. And every time, she's at the feet of Jesus. She is a disciple with a capital D. She loves Jesus. And she's willing to express that love as the Spirit leads. And she doesn't give a rip what you think about it. And she doesn't give a rip if it makes her look flaky or foolish because her eyes are on Jesus alone. And Mary takes out a jar of pure nard and pours it out on Jesus' feet. And you can almost hear everyone in the room gasp because this spike nard oil, it was grown and processed only in India. And it's rare and precious. And the portion that she poured out on Jesus' feet was valued at a year's wages. So even if you take just the federal minimum wage, she just poured out $15,000 on Jesus' dirty feet. This oil was so expensive that most people just bought the cheap imitations. And if you did buy the real thing, you kept it locked away as an investment. But not Mary. Mm-mm. She used the real thing, 
for real worship. And she poured it all out on Jesus. And then in a startling act of intimacy, she let down her hair and she used it to clean Jesus' feet. And you can almost hear another gasp (gasps) as she did this. Because proper Jewish women, they kept their hair bound up in public. And the only time they ever let it down is in front of their immediate family or their husbands. Can you imagine that moment, that stillness, as everybody stops eating and everybody stops talking? The weight of those stairs on Mary. The smell of the perfume in the room. And just that faint sound of her using her hair to clean Jesus' calloused feet. What a moment of unashamed, passionate, sacrificial worship. It's convicting, right? Because sometimes we won't sing and worship, won't raise our hands, won't pray aloud, because we're just, you know, self-conscious. And sometimes we give sparingly or not at all because we're just worried that we're going to have enough for ourselves. Sometimes we serve others or serve others grudgingly because, honestly, we'd rather be served. But not Mary. (laughs) Not Mary. And there's always going to be people who are offended by this type of extravagant worship. And Mary's worship was apparently too much for Judas because he just crushes the moment when he pipes up, hey, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Judas. Despite being Jesus' disciple for three years, despite seeing all the miracles, despite hearing all the preaching and the parables and the prayers, despite going to Sunday school and Wednesday night supper, and Bible study, Judas still doesn't get it. Judas worships another master. Money. And like many religious people, Judas covers his hard heart with pious words and reasonable sounding intentions, but John lays it bare because he said Judas did this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And the contrast between these two Jesus people, these two disciples, these two church people is unmistakable. Mary's generous. Judas is greedy. Mary is humble and selfless. Judas is proud and selfish. And in the background of all of this, you can almost hear Jesus' words echoing, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But there's more going on in this scene than just personal, intimate worship. Because Mary's worship is also prophetic. Because Mary didn't merely wash Jesus' feet with oil. John says that she anointed him. Now in ancient Israel, when kings were coronated, when priests were consecrated, and prophets were commissioned, they were often anointed with oil to symbolize a profound spiritual reality that God's presence was uniquely with them and God's favor was uniquely upon them. But anointings also took place in a different context. It was a customary Jewish funeral practice 
to anoint a dead body, to wash it with perfumed oil in preparation for burial. So when Mary pours the oil out on Jesus, when she anoints him, she's doing both. She's recognizing that his hour has come, that the long prophesied Messiah, literally the anointed one, was about to take center stage, that the long-awaited king of Israel was about to take his throne. And you know how he was going to do that? He was going to do it by going to the cross and dying. And somehow, Mary sees what other people can't. Mary sees what other people won't. And maybe they don't want to see it for the same reason we don't want to see it, Because we know that if we're called to follow Jesus, we have to follow him there to the cross. As Bible scholar John Whitbleet notes, for those of us who follow Jesus, it's tempting to be attracted by a vision of the Christian life that is filled with warm hospitality and even extravagant worship, but that has no real room in it for a suffering and dying Lord or for the dying-to-ourselves way of life into which Jesus calls us. Because the cross is not just a mark for our forehead. It's a model for our lives. And so, yes, like Lazarus, it's disorienting for us to be exposed to the glory of God and yet walk in a sinful world subject to temptation and suffering and pain. So how do we do that? We look to our crucified king, who though he was God, did not insist on the privileges of God, but humbled himself to become a human and take the form of a slave. And for us, he walked into the wilderness alone, into the teeth of temptation and deprivation. And he ultimately died a painful and shameful death so that we might have life. Because at the cross, Christ made a way for us. And like Judas, we're all tempted to trust in material resources for security and to believe that money, you know what, money is what really makes good things happen. And so how do we avoid that temptation? Again, we look to our crucified king, who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that by his poverty we might have all that we would ever need, every spiritual blessing. Because at the cross, Christ made a way for us. And like Mary, we all want to worship like her. We want to fall at Jesus' feet and sacrificially and worshipfully pour out all that we have. But how do we do that? We look to our crucified King the one who gave himself up for us, who poured himself out a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Because at the cross, Christ made a way for us. Church, we can't get to Easter without going through Good Friday, and we can't have resurrection life without dying to ourselves first. But as hard as the cross is, as heavy as the cross is, as deadly as the cross is, because of Jesus, it is a place of victory. So yes, the cross is the place of our repentance, but it's also the place of our forgiveness. 
Yes, the cross is a place of being humbled, but it's also the place where God will exalt us. Yes, the cross is the place of our great weakness, but it's also the place where we are filled with God's great strength. And yes, the cross is a place where we die to ourselves, but it's also the place where we are raised to new life. And as we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, the Spirit of Christ will actually anoint us anoint us with that victory so that we might walk, as the scripture says, in a triumphal procession and spread in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing Jesus. At the cross, church, Christ made a way for us so that the cross might have its way in us. Amen.